We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Mancone of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And also in studio with us today is Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Ross. Good evening. Now, this is our second week here in the 10 p.m. time slot. So uh, thanks for everybody uh, tuning in, following us over from our usual time slot at 8.30. This is our last week here, so don't look for us again over here. But uh, while we're here, uh, we're going to enjoy the extra time that we've got. So program's going to run for a little bit of extra time today. On the show today, well, as usual, we've got plenty of politics to break down for you, especially as the new legislative yuan starts to take shape. And this week, we saw the KMT managing to punch just a little bit above its weight. Uh, So interesting to look at that. In the second half, we're going to talk about the controversy over nuclear waste storage that's got the not-in-my-backyard crowd out in force. Then we're going to talk about another controversy, this one involving the sticky wicket of whether or not to issue a visa to the Dalai Lama. But first, we are starting out in politics and yet another controversy. Uh, Contentious week this was. Caught in the crosshairs this time is President-elect Tsai Ing-wen and her decision to stay on as DPP chairwoman even after she assumes the presidency, despite her criticism of President Ma Jio for doing, well, the exact same thing, pretty much. During his time as president, he, of course, served as KMT head between 2009 and 2014. Uh, Some are now pointing out that uh, Tsai herself criticized Ma back in 2009 when he went back on his promise not to go for the KMT chairmanship. Uh, And at the time, uh, the KMT, of course, had a firm majority in the legislature. So uh, the criticism was that uh, with Ma at the helm of both the party and the executive, uh, he would gain a lot of influence over the legislature. Basically meaning he's got two branches of government and, you know, kind of erodes that system of checks and balances that uh, we like to hold up over here. So skip ahead to the current legislature. Of course, we have a DPP majority now, and it's, well, it's kind of hard to see exactly how this situation is uh, very different from that situation back in 2009. Just kind of a mirror image over here. Uh, Thus, the accusations of hypocrisy. Now, uh, Gavin, uh, Ty and the DPP have responded to these accusations. What have they been saying? It's baloney. I'm paraphrasing quite obviously there. What's They're, it's baloney in Chinese? Bad cold meat. Okay, fine. Anyway, go on. Anyway, yes, the DPP have responded to that by saying, hey, well, the DPP haven't. She has, though, and she has basically said it's slightly a different scenario because this is the first time the DPP have had a majority in the legislature, which, of course, they have. And she said, well, she figures that if she retains her post as chairwoman and president, it will help things run more smoothly. And a a quote here is, it will better enable her to carry out her campaign platform and coordinate between the DPP and her administration. Right. Uh, She also said, it won't be one single person making the decisions, which of course, as some of the criticism has said, it's going to be her. And she said that basically, you know, the party and the administration will be working together and she will just be like the the figurehead making sure they work together in a, a way where they get things done. 
Or well, about- I think any, any assumptions that she'll be able to maintain a, a tight control over a very large number of DPP legislators in, in the legislative union is incorrect. So this might help reduce the likelihood of tensions between her and, and the party caucus. But there's a lot of people. They have different opinions. Some of them have different priorities uh, as far as leg- legislation that they want to see passed. So it's an attempt to keep everyone in line, but uh, we shouldn't assume that she will succeed. And obviously, the Mind Joe example proves that even when the president was the party chairman and he had a majority, he was not able to maintain control over his legislative caucus or pass the legislation that he wanted to see passed with the speed that he wanted it to be passed. But of course, I mean, while Tsai's decision to stay on as chairwoman and president has got criticism from the KMT, which is predictable enough, they've also got criticism from some some DPP allies, most namely being the NPP. And of course, the former heavy metal singer turned politician, Freddie Lim, this week, turned around and wasn't very happy that she decided to stay on in both roles. And he's sort of demanding that she further explain her move to stay on in two roles rather than sort of ex- he he wanted her to expound on what she'd said about basically the new political developments after the DPP took a majority of seats in the legislature being the backbone behind her decision to remain on in both the roles. Well, no surprise there given that part of the NPP's reason for being is is to improve the quality of the, of the legislature exactly and say that the legislature is independent it, it does make good and proper decisions and, and see they'll view this as presidential interference, not, not just party interference. Right. Uh, now, something that comes up for me is, you know, one of the long running uh, criticisms against the KMT is that it doesn't operate as uh, a normal party in the way that we think of party politics in, in any given country. You know, it's not just there uh, to shore up votes, to coordinate between members. It all I mean, it kind of operates as its own entity with its own set of interests that are sort of separate uh, and apart from uh, normal business as usual politics. Now, that's that's the criticism against the KMT. Uh, what about the DPP? I mean, how how, how do, does the DPP operate in uh, a, a different way, or, or, or is that just kind of how politics are done in Taiwan? Because that's kind of the rebuttal that uh, Tsai and other DPP members have been making this week is, oh, we're not the KMT. It's not going to work that way with us. Well, a, a very simple analysis would, would indicate that both parties, the KMT and the DPP, make a lot of their significant decisions either by fiat, by the chairperson, and or in central committee meetings, uh, and, and both parties operate that way. So at some level, it, decisions come from on high. Yeah. And it's made behind closed doors by a number of very senior and powerful party members, and that applies to both parties. We also did see this week a, a number of uh, folks on the web saying basically that they don't really care what the DPP does here. They just want to see stuff get done. So it's uh, going to be interesting to see how many people are really focused on the process of politics or, you know, whether people just want to see the results of politics, whether, you know, they're basically, don't tell me how the sausage gets made, just make the reforms I want to see, and uh, I'll be happy when it's done, no matter how it got done. So uh, we'll see how that works out, but uh, we're going to move to another story, this one also in politics, but now moving from the executive branch to the legislature. Uh, That legislative body, in fact, began to take shape this week uh, as each of its eight committees chose their two chairmen. Uh, But things didn't quite go as the DPP might have planned, uh, especially given their huge majority. In fact, uh, quite a bit went wrong. And uh, boy, is DPP legislator Yang Yao's face red this week. Gavin, uh, what happened? 
Yes, well, poor young Yao, he decided to vote for himself, which is a rather silly thing to do when he was, when they were, actually this was the Social Welfare and Environmental Hygiene Committee, uh-huh. where Yang was one of two DPP candidates and the other one was Liu Jian Guo, and Miss poor Mr. Young decided to vote for himself, meaning that Alicia Wong from the KMT took control of the Social Welfare and Environmental Hygiene Committee. Needless to say, Mr. Young is probably now avoiding most of his colleagues in the legislature and probably in his office. Well, it's too bad. This voting was less than clean here. On the Social Welfare Hygiene Committee. <laughs> oh, for now, for now, yes. But of course, I mean, that's just one part of it. I mean, the KMT has only 35 seats in the 113-seat legislature, but it won seven governor seats, basically, in these committees. So, so it's going to head seven in these committees. It did have the help of the People's First Party, basically, yeah? Just to break and- that down a little bit more, there's uh, there's eight committees, two chairmen on each committee, so there's 16 total they got seven out of 16. That's almost half, and they're way less than half of the total legislature. Well, basically, yeah. I mean, obviously, the biggest blunder was Yang Yao's blunder when he decided to vote for himself. Right. You just don't do that. Why do you vote for yourself? You vote for someone. It doesn't matter, does it? I guess matter. central party coordination is needed. I guess that's what it, it demonstrates. I, I bet Barack Obama even voted for John McCain just because <laughs> it's just a thing to do, really, isn't it? You know. But you don't think he voted for Mitt Romney? Maybe. He probably did. Who knows? Probably did. Who knows? Who knows? You know, it's the, it's the done thing, isn't it? You don't vote for yourself, really. It's you have just, to be acclaimed. It's just rude, really, isn't it? Now, the Transport Committee and the Internal Administration Committee ballots, well, they went down to the wire with both the KMT and DPP candidates securing five votes apiece. Now, although the PFP lawmaker, Lee Hong Chun, supported the KMT candidate, another PFP lawmaker, Chen Yijie, he voted for a DPP candidate. So that went right down to the wire, and they basically flipped a coin for that one. So lots of whoops-a-daisies all around there. And basically, and KMT lawmaker Chen Shun-sheng won the Transportation Committee draw, basically, yeah? So that means the coin landed on Chiang Kai-shek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other seat (laughs) did go to a DPP lawmaker, Ye Jin, and that was based on seniority. So the KMT lawmaker took that because of seniority and a coin. The important thing with with these chairmanships is that they get to control sort of the meeting agendas and and how quickly uh, proposed legislation will move through the committee process. They're kind of gatekeepers. Uh, Correct, correct. And and we saw the significance a couple of years ago when the... Uh, cross-strait services agreement was moving through the legislature and the committee chairman decided to end the end the meeting and, and people reacted in a very negative way to his decision. So there is some importance to right. this role, but we shouldn't underestimate um, the, I'll call it the burden, because we have high expectations for him on the new legislative speaker, Su Jachen, to mediate in these situations. So uh, you know, Tsai picked him to run the legislature effectively. And uh, the part of the burden here will be on him to make sure that committee meetings are held in a professional way and, and there isn't too much partisanship with regard to the simple issue of setting meeting agendas and moving things through the committee process. Mm. But some of the big committees, I mean, we've got here, we've got the Education and Culture Committee. We've got a, well, DPP lawmaker Huang Guo Xu and KMT legislator Apollo Chen will be sharing that committee, believe it or not. While the Foreign and National Defence Committees are to be overseen by a DPP and a KMT lawmaker. They kind of rotate in and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. that's what they're doing on that one, yeah. All right, so probably not exactly the start to this legislative session that the DPP was hoping for. Uh, but hopefully they can all just, you know, play nice together and play by the rules. If they all play by the rules, it's not going to matter who's chairing what committee. 
Uh, but moving on to our last politics story for today,、uh, Gavin. Last week、uh, we discussed the KMT party assets, which of course quite substantial and also very controversial. The question has been、uh, high on everyone's mind: What are they going to do with all that stuff? Are they going to give it all away? Are they going to keep it? Well, we've got a new proposal for just what they might do with it. And this is a proposal by a Taipei City Councillor and a KMT Chairperson candidate Li Xin. He proposed this week distributing the party's assets among the estimated 360,000 members of the KMT. And according to Li, based on party assets of 10 billion NT, that means each member of the KMT will be allotted 30,000 NT. Now, of course, he is running for KMT Chairperson. So you could say maybe this is sort of vote buying without sort of alleging vote buying. If he's offering to give each member of the KMT thirty thousand NT, one could argue that. Of course, I am not arguing that. I am just saying. And to defend his policy, he likened it to a company distributing its profits to shareholders. Exactly. Exactly. He also said that the KMT could. Auction off all its properties by August of next year, and all the funds from those sales would also be distributed among KMT members. Of course, some might argue against that because it has long been argued that the KMT assets were all stolen from Taiwan when the nationalists came over here. Yeah, you know, it's just when when you really believe in a candidate,、uh, it's it's he's like your company, and when he wins, you get some of the profits of his、uh, victory in that election. It's that's how politics works. It did, but Li Xin's comments were quite funny because they were quite badly timed. Because the day that he said it, a big splashy headline on the front of the Liberty Times newspaper here said that KMT assets are mysteriously dipped by 5.2 billion NT over the past six months. Where'd it、so、go? Well, that's the big question. There are now questions over what, where this 5.2 billion NT has ended up. All right, so、uh, lots of controversy, intrigue, and question marks over that story. But we're going to leave politics there for today. And last up for this first half that we got here, well, we've got some business to attend to before we get to the break.、Uh, this business being, of course, the dollars and cents kind. And、uh, to help us out with that, as we,、uh, we often have helping us out with this kind of stuff,、uh, is Ross. Uh, and Ross,、uh, it sounds like this week there are a bunch of business type deals that are kind of on the skids, having a hard time making them move forward.、Uh, tell us what's going on there. That's right. There, there's three large transactions which get a lot of international media attention, which is one of the reasons why they're significant.、Uh, that that have, seem to have slowed down.、And、one is further delays in the sale of、uh, Dingxing Group's stake in Taipei 101,、uh, which is, seems to have、uh, been caused by a dispute over. The buyer's ability to review documentation and the seller's ability to provide this documentation with regard to the leases of some of the、uh, lessees in, in the Taipei 101 office building.、Uh, next is the Sharp and, and Foxconn transaction, which、uh, seemed to have been completed and everybody seemed ready to sign, and, and then、uh, it was discovered that there are certain contingent liabilities. Uh, with Sharp, that Foxconn needs to further review. That was a large amount of money, wasn't it? It's very. It was almost as big as the whole deal. For, the fortunately,、thing. it's only contingent, so <laughs> they won't necessarily turn into liabilities, but there is a potential.、Uh, so Foxconn wants to do further due diligence, which is understandable. And the next deal that is also、uh, now facing delays is the sale of a Taiwan semiconductor、uh, manufacturing company,、uh, Spill S P I L. So.、Uh, It, it raises the question about、uh, whether Taiwan's open for business, whether Taiwan companies、uh, operate by international practices, whether regulators in Taiwan operate by international practices.、Uh, 
altogether, it's it's not a positive for Taiwan's business image. But I think you have to break that up a bit, Ross. I think, of course, SPIL was looking to be bought out by a Chinese company. Yes. And, of course, the Taipei 101, I believe, was an American company. And, of course, Honhai was trying to buy a Japanese company. There's also, of course, the Eastern Broadcasting Corporation. Long saga about that one as well, which involves both an American company with alleged Chinese money. Right. And that's another transaction that's moving very slowly through the approval process. Uh, but regardless of who the partners are, it, it seems, you know, whether it's a buyer-seller buyer from, from Japan or, or U.S. Or, or China, it seems that all of these deals are encountering delays. And don't forget that 101, the initial buyer was a Malaysian buyer, and the government said, no, no, we don't want it to be bought by a Malaysian company. Uh, so uh, what, what's the message, Gavin, to foreign companies that want to do business with Taiwan companies? The serious message or the more facetious message? The facetious message <laughs> I choose be, facetious. Don't mess with us. <laughs> the serious message will be like, whoops, maybe you should speed up your way you review these sales and actually push some of them through. I mean, I can understand why they're concerned about the Chinese company buying SPIL, though, because, of course, there's controversy about that in the semiconductor business here. But, I mean, selling part of the 101... From obviously Dingxin, which was, of course, tainted by its horrible, bad, tainted oil scandal a few years ago and was basically forced out of the Taipei 101. I, ha I can't see why there's any delays in that whatsoever. Mm. It's a nice piece of real estate. Yeah, basically. I mean, I'm sure if you looked at lots of the real estate in the Shinny area in Taipei, which, of course, the funny thing is if you lived or worked in the Shinny area and never went anywhere else in Taipei, you'd be amazed at what it looked like. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's quite a few buildings there with foreign money in them. Now, uh, without, uh, with regard to the Foxconn and, and Sharp transaction, without identifying anyone being at fault as far as not revealing this information uh, in a quick enough manner, one of the things that uh, the chairman of, of Foxconn, Mr. Goyes, is universally highly regarded for is the speed at which he gets things done and the speed at which his company is able to produce products, for example, for its clients. Uh, so it, it's almost uh, you know, out of character for something to become so protracted involving himself and his company. Do you think this could be the Japanese government sort of? Well, there was, a, there Japanese was a Japanese buyer. Backed buyer that's that's correct. Out? Yes. Yes, Ooh, lots but, of intrigue and speculation on this business segment. I wasn't, I wasn't quite expecting it. Uh, all right, well, uh, businesses get it together. That's the message from the show today. I don't know enough about any of this stuff to really criticize anybody. Although it does seem kind of weird that uh, Foxconn would wait till so late in the game to do its due diligence. That's a that's a big chunk of money that we're talking about there. In any event, we're gonna have to close out the first half there. When we come back, Thai Power faces a backlash over its nuclear waste storage plans. And will the Dalai Lama come to Taiwan? The question giving a headache to both the current and former administrations. We take a look at both of these stories when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of the top news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Ross Feingold. Kicking off the second half, hey, Thai Power, where are you going with that plutonium? That is what a whole bunch of people in Shimon were asking this week. Yes, residents and nuclear experts expressed alarm over Thai Power's plans to store spent fuel rods from various nuclear reactors now on their way to getting shut down. 
so a lot of this uh, criticism centered on the Sherman nuclear power plant, which is set to be shuttered uh, either 2018 or 2019. And uh, what do we do with all those fuel rods? Uh, so, Gavin, uh, break this down for us. What are the plans and why are they controversial? Well, Thai Power is going to... Oh, you said, Keith, the Shimon plant is scheduled to be decommissioned sometime between 2018 and 2019. And apparently, um, Thai Power said, we need, a, we need a repository at the Shimon nuclear plant itself, basically, yeah? So they don't want to move it anywhere. They're saying, OK... That would be a temporary facility. It would be a temporary facility at the Shimon nuclear plant itself. But when you look at the numbers of this that they're touting, it's rather frightening. Apparently, it's 5,720 bundles of used fuel rods Ah. and more than 60,000 drums of low-level radioactive waste. That's low-level. And that's what they're hoping to store in Sherman, which is in New Taipei Taipei in the northern part of the island, when the the plant is decommissioned. Now, Eric Jew, he's the New Taipei mayor, of course, came out and basically said, no way, Jose, I'm not turning New Taipei into a nuclear garbage dump basically and of course anti-nuclear activists have also come out and said hang on a minute we're taking to the streets on march the 11th anyway to complain about this so a whole people have got opposition and their backs are up about it but of course thai power have simply said well you know last year we did some hit the plan and we said we'd allocate 18 billion nt for the disposal of the nuclear waste and the dismantling of the plant over the next 25 years now it also said it plans to store the high-level radioactive waste in steel cylinders surrounded by concrete shells placed outdoors as a temporary solution until a permanent depository is constructed. Sadly, though, apparently the final disposal site is not to be decided until 2038 and it will be ready for use by 2055. Gavin, how would they move it from the temporary place to the permanent place? They put it on trucks? I presume they'd put it on little blue trucks like you get zipping around the streets of Taipei here with men chewing beetle nut and smoking cigarettes in them, driving rather rapidly through small lanes and alleyways. Ah, that blue truck whizzing towards you could be radioactive. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm getting memories of that incident a few years ago when the the whale exploded. The whale exploded, yeah, the whale exploded in Tainan, that's right. They haven't said how they're going to transport it, but I think the point of this is they're trying to establish a temporary storage facility at Shuman plant itself, so basically they don't have to hump it around everywhere. But of course the Shuman plant is only one of three, I believe, that are being decommissioned in the coming 10 years or so. Yeah. Well, this is not going to be resolved before the new government takes over. So it's one more extraordinarily challenging decision for the incoming government of, of President Tsai and, and their position, the DPP position on nuclear power is very well known. That Shut being it said, down. Th- that being said, they still have to deal with the waste. Yeah. You can't make the waste go away. There was an interesting story last year about all this nuclear waste where they were actually they were going to pay the French to take the nuclear waste away, which, yeah. would be the, which if they did this, it would be the first time that the Taiwan has paid another government to take away its nuclear waste. But not the first time they tried because there's no, been past before. North Korea, North Cambodia. Korea, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's they, been several attempts. They did try with North Korea, didn't they? And so Cambodia as well. Right. Yeah, but North Korea, of course, would be probably more interested in things covered in nuclear fusion, I presume. Of, of course, uh, there's an unfortunate history involving Taiwan and large transactions with France. Uh, yes, they went badly wrong when they got the boats, didn't they, some yes. years ago? There's also, of course, as we talk about virtually every other week, a rather large problem with Taiwan and sort of 
accidents happening. Well, which is why you know, where are they going to move it on a permanent basis is is uh, a very serious question. How they would do that? There was actually talk this week. Sorry, Ross. There was actually talk this week of an uninhabited island off the coast, putting it there. Well, well one of the interesting things in this process, uh, as the new government takes over after May twentieth and has to confront this issue, is most of the local governments are now also controlled by the DPP. So. On the one hand, perhaps they can't stick it in the enemy's camp, right? Perhaps Chairman Tsai could could use her her extraordinary power within the party uh. to impose this decision on on an unhappy local government, or uh, she's going to have to look for another option because she doesn't want to displease a, a local jurisdiction that's under DPP control. So it, it's an extraordinarily difficult issue, but they need to have a solution. Yeah, because the solution they've got at the moment on Orchid Island is not very popular with anyone, let alone the people that live on Orchid Island, of course. Absolutely. That is, I mean, when when, when you see uh, protests made from, you know, the Aboriginal community in Taiwan, that is issue number one that they raise, you know, in terms of historical memory, historical wrongs in recent memory. That is issue number one. It's quite a haunting place to see, actually. Yeah. Or not, the storage facility down there. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see if uh, the apology that, President Tsai is going to issue to Taiwan's Aboriginal community will also include nuclear issue. Mm. All right. Well, uh, getting back to that protest that Gavin was talking about just a second ago, that is going to be on March 12th. Uh, And so, you know, a a lot of groups are going to be out there. And the pressure, like Ross said, really is going to be on the Tsai administration. So even though uh, the plans to shut down all these nuclear plants are well known, this is an issue that's going to stick with us. And on that note, uh, we're going to go back into politics. I guess we never really left politics today, but uh, we're going to remain in politics. Uh, This one is politics with a bit of a cross-straight twist and, I guess, a dash of religion thrown in there as well. A lot going on here. Now, who would deny the Dalai Lama a visa? His holiness, the nice old guy with glasses, who's going to slam the door on that guy? Well... Taiwan has, actually, in fact, a number of times uh, since his last trip in 2009, uh, presumably on pressure from China. And now the question has come up again, uh, and it's confronting both the outgoing Biden administration and the incoming Tsai administration at the same time, whether or not it's appropriate, desirable, or, you know, feasible to issue this visa. Now, uh, Gavin, uh, tell us a little bit about how this issue came to the fore this time around. I believe it uh, involves a one Apollo Chen. Yes, it was the fact that the same KMT lawmaker that we mentioned running one of the committees, Apollo Chen. That's and, a great name. Yeah, he's actually very nice, Greek. He's, he's a very nice guy, actually. Yeah. But he, he put forward this motion that said that the government should allow the Dalai Lama to travel to Taiwan and issue him with a visa. And Chen was wanting to do this before President Ma Ying-jeou steps down in May, saying it would be a good opportunity, you know. Obviously, the Dalai Lama has been denied visas since 2009, and Apollo Chen figured, hey, you know, Ma Ying-jeou's going to step down in May. He met with China's leader last year in Singapore, possibly a good idea if he meets with the Dalai Lama to show Taiwan's sort of open religious environment. Yes. And there's also been rumours that more more invitations to the Dalai Lama could come from local Buddhist groups, who, of course, many of whom have been biting at the bit to have the Dalai Lama come over because, of course, he's been denied visas since 2009 on several occasions. So let's kind of split this up into two separate issues. First, uh, for the Ma administration, 
Uh, I mean, is this something that they really want to be thinking about or taking on in their last couple of months? This seems like a rather remote possibility, and I don't quite understand why Mr. Chun is bringing this up right now. Well, the Premier this week said that, uh, and that's Premier Simon Jung, he said that the Ma administration is still reviewing the specifics of any possible visit to Taiwan by the Dalai Lama, but the Mainland Affairs Council and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs have not received any applications from the Office of Tibet's Exiled Spiritual Leader vis-a-vis a possible visit to Taiwan. Well, that, that's a bit of a, a, a cop-out in the sense that the, the application would probably only be submitted if we knew for sure it would be approved you know, to avoid embarrassment all around. But, uh, but I mean, like at the end of the day, uh, is the Ma administration really going to make an issue of this with only two and a half months to go? Uh, I, I think there's a lot of risk for them to do so. Uh, President Ma's greatest cross-straits achievement was, as Gavin mentioned, the meeting with Xi Jinping last November. And part of that legacy and part of that goodwill that he, he believes he's developed with China would be jeopardized if he did approve a Dalai Lama visit, even if he didn't meet personally with the Dalai Lama. On the other hand, if the Dalai Lama came and President Ma did not meet with the Dalai Lama, President Ma would come in for a lot of criticism uh, as far as you know, being too scared of China. So it's a very difficult... It's like a lose-lose. Which augurs for not giving him the visa and throwing it over, just like many other issues we talked about today, right. throwing it over to the new government. Exactly. Uh, okay, so that brings us back to the new government. Uh, and this would be uh, a bit of a headache for them because, uh, I mean, it raises a lot of the issues that uh, Ross just mentioned. On the one hand, if they uh, do invite him, that sours their relationship right off the bat with China. Uh, and if they ignore invitations, if they block invitations to have the Dalai Lama come over, uh, well, then it looks like they are being, you know, weak and bending to China's priorities. Yeah, there's been there's been talk that President-elect Tsai Ing-wen, her government could give him a visa and in order to convince Beijing to keep cross-strait dialogue open, even though the Dalai Lama's come here, she might not meet with him, which of course opens up another can of worms because then she'll face the same criticism that Ma faces. And what if she is asked the question whether or not Tibet is a part of China? What would President Tsai say? Well, we'll have to leave that one to President Tsai. But yeah, that does illustrate... Uh, how difficult this uh, situation is. But, of course, there has been talk of him coming in September or early October. They were the dates that were floated around, basically. But, of course, like I said, no one in the government, current government, has any news about him wanting to come here. And neither is, and the DPP has said it's currently not aware of any pending invitations for the Dalai Lama to visit Taiwan. So, I mean, is this, is this probably going to be one of the early tests of... Uh, the Tsai administration's stance on cross-strait policy, or, or am I elevating it to a status, you know, am I, am I making a bigger deal out of this than it really should be considered? It would be a huge test if, if there is a serious desire by whoever it is to invite him to come here, if there's some sort of conference, for example, um, that, and the new government is forced to make a decision, and a decision to give him a visa would obviously jeopardize relations with China. All right. So maybe an indication of where the cross-strait winds are blowing coming up in just uh, just a couple of months only. But last up for today, we're going to move to our final story. Uh, and, you know, we, we as I've said many times on the show, we try to keep this last one kind of on the lighter side. Today, though, uh, we're talking about a push for privatization of a military memorial. So not exactly a lighter side sort of story, 
But the reason that we're putting it here is just how many eye rolls and how much snickering Gavin has uh, given over this story this week. Uh, Gavin, tell tell us about the story. This is this is a proposal. It's only a proposal. I will state to privatize management of the Martyr's Shrine in Taipei. Now, the Martyr's Shrine is a popular if it's a popular tourist destination you could call it and it's dedicated to roc nationals who were killed in wars and major battles i believe there's this goes back to since the beginning of the roc up to the bombing of jingmen basically in the 1950s so our people roc also being part of china if that's if i can say that you know the republic of china from 19 right sun yat-sen until the night yeah people who died in the roc are memorialised there. All that history right About there. About 300,000 of them, basically, wow. yeah? Yeah. And, of course, it's run by the Ministry of Defence because, of course, it's the place where you get... You have the guards in London in the red uniforms and the bearskins marching outside Buckingham Palace. In Taipei, you have the military in their dress uniforms... The shiny and hats. their shiny silver hats and their guns twisting them around, doing the marching thing at the Martyr Shrine. It's why people go there to see this. Exactly. And it's every different, every few months, the Air Force do it one month, the military, the army do it another month, the Navy guard it another month. And if you went over a four-month period, you'd get a mix of uniforms and a mix of, you know, you'd see the army, you'd see the army doing their thing, basically, yeah? In their dress uniforms. But now they're saying it shouldn't be those guys. No, they're saying we don't want the... Res- or some people are saying they don't want... This is run by the military's reserve command. So it's not, you know, it's not quite the guys... You know, it's the reserve command that runs it. <laughs> not, not, not the shock troops. Not the shock troops, no. But it's the reserve command. And there has been calls to privatise it. And the, the Ministry of Defence has gone, yeah, we are looking into this, but we've got to make sure that if we privatise it, it'll be run by a company or a private business... Who actually run it properly uh, with respect, if you see what I mean. If you gave it to a private company, they might be selling like stupid things there, which obviously the armed forces don't want. This wasn't a proposal by the armed forces. This was a proposal by the Ministry of Finance. Ah, but of course, a little, kind of a money saving kind a, of a money gambit. making possibly thing. Because uh-huh. then the money, if you privatise it, of course the money goes to the company and not the state. It's a state martyr's shrine so the money should technically go to the state that's my argument on that but it does cost money to maintain it and the government wouldn't be on the hook for that anymore technically it costs money to maintain it because the army maintain it and they pay the soldiers obviously the soldiers are paid by the military and they're just there anyway well it's not just the soldiers it's maintaining the the grounds and the the staff obviously the the other staff yeah but uh, gavin correct me if i'm wrong but i believe right now entry is free so if it was privatized and private operator, they charge, they'd have to they charge, charge, they'd charge have to admission. charge money, wouldn't they, basically? Which means you wouldn't get the tourists going there. But, of course, after this came up, it reminded me that it's not the first thing that they've tried to privatize here, I believe, Ross, recently. In, in Well, the uh, operation of, of Chiang Kai-shek and, and, and Chiang Ching Guo's yeah, yeah, mausoleums. mausoleums yeah, yeah. Also, uh, been been discussions about privatizing and, and or letting Taoyuan County have have control over it rather than the Ministry of National Defense. Yeah, because again, they're like the Martyr Shrine; they're free. Uh, yeah, you can uh, go to them. They're there. You just walk into them. Basically, they're free. They're a bit out of the way. Right. They so they don't free. get they don't get as much foot traffic as yeah. as Martyr Shrine does, and and obviously with a large number of mainland tourists, this is something of, of curiosity to mainland tourists to go see these memorials to past battles involving the Republic and again, of China. And again, the soldiers with the shiny hats. And, and the so, which which of, you could also see at... The marching. At, you could also see at Sun Yat-sen and, and, and Shanghai 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 Shanghai, Shanghai. Yeah, yeah it's, it's basically the same routine. 
But uh, so, 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 Ross. I mean, you have you have connections to the Republican Party. They're they're the the privatization party. <laughs> Former connections. Uh, so you know, in the U.S., if there were calls to privatize the Lincoln Memorial, would that would that be a plan that would hold water in your book? Uh, memorials like that, possibly. The distinction here is would be our plans to privatize the operations of Arlington National Cemetery. Uh-huh. And, and that that would not go down well, obviously. Uh, no matter how small the number is, there are still people here in Taiwan who whose grandfathers or great-grandfathers or great-great-grandfathers fought in some of those battles that are memorialized at, at the Martyr Shrine. And uh, people might object to, to privatizing something that in most places we consider uh, appropriate to be run by by government, and in this case, because it's a military memorial, it should be operated by the military. Well, uh, if that sharp deal doesn't go through, Foxconn's going to have some extra money on their books. Uh, maybe, maybe they could make a you know we could get some new apps out of this thing. It could be a lot of fun. Well, it, there was a lot of facetious remarks on the interweb about this Martyr Shrine privatization after it came out, and the people were saying, "Hey, maybe we could just privatize the National Palace Museum." <laughs> Would that include the new facility down south? That, 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 everything basically. <laughs> Another option right there. All right. Well, we're going to leave it on those facetious comments online. Always want to let those netizens have the last word on this show. That is it for today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening, usually at 8.30. Today, obviously, it was a little bit later. Right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes. And uh, we've just started posting to SoundCloud as well. Just search Keith ICRT. You can find it there. Uh, quick question to our listeners out there. Please, uh, if you have an opinion on this, please do send in your thoughts. Next week, we are going back to our usual 8.30 p.m. time slot. But uh, what would you think if we stayed here at the 10 p.m.? We actually do get a little bit of extra time here. The show can run about 40 minutes instead of just 20 or so. So it gives us uh, some time to get to all of the things in a little bit more detail than we could otherwise. Uh, so what do you think of that? If we went to the 10 p.m., would that cause any problems for anybody out there? Let us know. You can send me your thoughts. Keith at ICRT.com.tw. That's my email address. Again, Keith at ICRT.com.tw. Or send us a message on the Facebook page. Let us know. Do you prefer 8.30 with a little less time, 10 p.m. with a little bit more? Anyway, signing off from the ICRT studio, we're going to leave it there. I am Keith Benconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Gavin. Hey, good night. And uh, Ross Feingold as well. Ross, thank you. Good night. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.